Well, what a great song to kick off Thanksgiving week. Um, I hope you're all taking stock of your many blessings and expressing gratitude to the Lord. I was thinking as I drove in uh, this morning, uh, Proverbs chapter 20 um, says in verse, let's see if I can find it here, 12, the hearing eye and the see, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. When's the last time you thanked the Lord just for your eyes to see and your feet that walk in here with or your ears that you can hear? My eyes are pretty bad. My ears are even worse, but I thank the Lord for them, right? Uh, you know, we look around and we see that we have warm clothes. We have food in our stomachs. We have a roof over our heads. We have family and friends to share our joys and our burdens, by the way. We count our blessings. In fact, I would be uh, certain that across America today and the Sunday before Thanksgiving, many churches are singing that old hymn, Count Your Many Blessings, right? Pretty common uh, song like some of the ones we sung ourselves this morning. Uh, we tend to think about life in this temporal realm of what we can see and touch and hear, and we thank God as we should for His provision in our lives. But the question that popped into my mind uh, this week, I never could get really going on my uh, Acts chapter 21 message, so that'll have to wait till next week. But I think it was uh, the Lord's direction because I, I started thinking, are all of our blessings limited to this earthly life? Well, no, not at all. We've been talking on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock about some of the blessings that await us in eternity. Uh, time when there'll be no more sorrow or sadness or darkness, a time when we'll see our loved ones once again, a time when we'll hear the Lord say, hopefully, well done, good and faithful servant. So I'm calling this message this morning, Set Your Mind on Things Above. You know, Last week we looked at Paul's moving address to the Ephesian elders. Uh, about three years after that address, Paul writes a letter back to Ephesus and Ephesians was really the first letter that Paul wrote, if you remember, while he was in prison in Rome. He wrote four letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and, or Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians, doing them in chronological order. And this Ephesians was his seventh letter overall, and he wrote it in the fall of 60 A.D. And I want you to notice how that letter begins. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Now, how often this time of year do we think about our spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ? I mean, we have so much to be thankful for. Obviously, you know, we sit around the table and uh, we enjoy time with family and friends and in some cases relatives that don't get to see each other. Uh, you know, you get to see them. Uh, in our case, you know, kids coming home from school and just really a, a warm a time of being reunited when we don't get to see them every day, that, that kind of thing. And, of course, who can forget the Cowboys after the nice meal and get to watch that game, speaking of heavenly blessings. But anyway, uh, but Paul here talks about spiritual blessings, not that we can see sitting across the table from us, but in the heavenlies. And so... What are those spiritual blessings? And for that, I want to go to another one of Paul's prison epistles, and that's the book of Colossians. So one year after he wrote Ephesians, he'd been in prison a year, 
and he writes his second letter from prison, uh, his eighth letter overall of his 13 that he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. And so now we're in the fall of 61 A.D. And, you know, Colossians and Ephesians, if you've studied them, you know they share many themes. They, they kind of have a lot of crossover. Paul was, you know, in the same setting, the same place, roughly the same time frame. And so as he's thinking about these things and the Spirit of God is using him, guiding him along to write what we now have in Scripture, it's not surprising that we see some some overlap. Now, Paul had not visited the city of Colossae when he wrote this epistle, but he had gotten some report or learned somehow that uh, the believers there were being misled by some false teachers. And so, among his many other purposes for writing this letter, it was to address this false teaching. And the false teachers in Colossae were denigrating the person and work of Christ. They were downplaying Christ's atoning work on the cross and marginalizing His power. And another thing that seems to have been going on there based on what Paul says in the letter of, to the Colossians was that they were emphasizing this sort of mystical Eastern worship of angels and other type of weird mystical religious thoughts. The, the false teachers promoted the self-serving idea that only they had the full knowledge and full uh, you know, access to truth and only they could understand spiritual matters. Uh, uh, this is an idea that later toward the end of the first century into the second century became known as Gnosticism, this sort of higher knowledge. And by the way, that's the same thing 2,000 years later that we see today through secret societies and other Luciferian groups. And I talk about that in the second volume of Spirit of the Antichrist. But what Paul is basically saying in Colossians is that whenever we get our eyes off of Christ and our spiritual blessings in Him, then we're in danger of being led astray into some serious, spiritually detrimental territory. The Colossian believers had lost sight of who Christ is. They had trusted in Him for their eternal salvation. But they were missing out on the many blessings that were theirs because of their identity in Christ, because they were now part of the family of God. Um, they were focused on the wrong thing. They were focused on their own worldly wisdom and this mysticism being thrust down their throats by these false teachers. They were focusing on experientialism, but they were not focusing on Christ to the degree that they should have. In chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul said this, Beware. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. The philosophy there is the only occurrence of that word in the entire Bible. Philosophy. Phileo, love. Sophia, wisdom. It's the love of wisdom. And in this context, talking about earthly, man's wisdom, not divine wisdom as revealed in God's word. And so he says, there are those that are coming against you that are suggesting some type of man-made wisdom according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And so beware of them. Beware of them. Again, whenever we get our eyes off of Christ and our spiritual blessings in Him, then we're in danger of being led astray into some spiritually detrimental uh, territory. That word cheat, when he says, beware lest anyone cheat you, in Greek it has the idea of take you captive. It's uh, 
It's almost like a hunting term where you would, where you would capture uh, a prey. You know, picture the old uh, cartoon with the box and the stick and the carrot underneath it and, you know, the fox or whatever it is, I guess the rabbit, you know, comes in and you pull that string and boom, you're captured. And that's kind of the word picture here that's painted in this Greek uh, text. Uh, beware, you know, you're toying with something that's not good. So in Colossians, Paul challenges the believer to set his or her mind on things above, on spiritual things, on heavenly things, but not in some esoteric mystical way. Rather, we're to see our spiritual blessings as rooted in Christ, the same Christ who died and rose again for your sins and offers to you freely the gift of eternal life if you'll simply trust in Him and Him alone for it. That same Christ has certain blessings that come with being associated with Him, with being identified with Him. And so as we enter Thanksgiving week, I want to ask you this week to think not only about our many blessings that God has poured out upon us in this earth as we await His return, but think about the blessings that you have from above. And as the Holy Spirit brings it to your mind, I want you to ask yourself, what are you thinking? What am I thinking? What are my thoughts? Where is my focus? I mean, we all understand that, humanly speaking, negative thoughts are not healthy, right? Thoughts of worry, fear, anxiety, discouragement, depression, whatever it is. Those are easy to recognize. Not so easy to avoid, but we, we understand this is not good. But what occurs to me is that sometimes even so-called good thoughts, healthy thoughts, can be the enemy of the best thoughts when we find our peace and contentment and joy solely in things on earth. Because those things won't last. You know, as we look around and we think, oh, our family's here and uh, this is a wonderful time. We've got, you know, like I said, a roof over our heads, food in our stomachs. God is good and He is good. But if that's where you're looking to find your true peace and contentment, you're going to be let down. And doing, doing that sort of robs us of the true source of, of real deep peace that can come only from setting our mind on things above. So I want to just suggest four things that really should occupy our thoughts based on Colossians chapter 3. If you want to turn there with me, it's a great passage of scripture. I go there again and again. It's marked up in my Bible here because it's uh, it got so much encouragement in these four short verses. But as I think about this concept of setting our minds on things above, I, I see four uh, things really that should occupy our thoughts as we express gratitude this week. First thing I want you to ask, are you thinking about your identity in Christ? Are you thinking about your identity in Christ? This is one of the most underemphasized doctrines in the church today. Who are you in Christ? As I said, if you've placed your faith in Christ for eternal salvation, then you have unique blessings that are unique only to God's people that come with being identified with Christ. You're part of the family of God. You're co-heirs with Christ regarding uh, the coming kingdom. You know, it's interesting today we're going to be celebrating baptism this afternoon at 1 o'clock. I hope everybody will come out for that to support those that are being baptized. But a few weeks ago we talked about the meaning of baptism. And in Scripture, the term baptism just means identification. It identifies you with something. 
So when we talk about our identity in Christ, what we're talking about is the moment you placed your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit, according to what Paul says, baptizes us, identifies us with Christ. So if you know the Lord, if you've placed your faith in Him, you're already identified with Christ. The problem is, because right now, we're living on earth, and the first few years, first few decades, whatever it might be, of our new life in Christ are lived on this old sin-stricken earth, we tend to become distracted by and consumed with the things that we can see and feel and touch, and we forget that actually we're citizens of heaven, that we have an identification, a connection uh, to Christ. So that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That happens the moment you place your faith in Christ instantaneously. It identifies you with Christ. You are in Christ if you know the Lord. Water baptism that we're going to be uh, witnessing this afternoon identifies the person being baptized with other believers. It's a way of saying, hey, I'm one of you. I've trusted Christ too. I'm part of the family of God. Uh, but I want you to see what Paul writes here in verse 1, Colossians 3.1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Now, in Greek, this first word there, if, is actually since. It can be translated since. So the idea here is since you were raised with Christ, or if you were raised with Christ and you are, then you should seek those things which are above. So he's reminding the Colossian believers, and us, by the way, of our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ. We have new life, spiritual life, eternal life, just as surely as Christ himself defeated death when he rose the third day. In the previous chapter, chapter 2, Paul had said this, We're buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith. Again, when you place your faith in Christ, that's what quickens you in the Spirit. That's what gives you new life. That's how we are born again. Raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. See, when you placed your faith in Christ to receive the free gift of eternal life, in that moment of faith, you're made alive. Paul said something very similar in Ephesians. Remember I said these two letters share a lot of themes. He said, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, and then he adds, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, even to the extent that we as believers are thinking about the Lord, and I don't know about you, but you know, I think about the Lord all several times a day not in a super spiritual i'm a great christian kind of a way but you know we think about the lord we think about the lord's return we think about what's going on in the world we just see life through the lens of our relationship with christ but how often do we actually think about him in terms of in the heavenly places and the fact that that's where our uh, home uh, is that we are, we're just sojourners and pilgrims passing through this old earth. Do you realize this whole earth is going to burn up? You know, I mean, we're, as a church, we're experiencing incredible blessings here in these great last days. God is bringing folks here. We've got a sweet spirit. We've got new relationships being forged. We've got a lot of great things. Obviously, plenty that we need to do more and do better. 
but it, it's 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 great and we've got a great facility and uh, you know uh, as we think about what to do with all the people here you know it occurs to me we want to be good stewards of what God's entrusted to us but it's kind of humbling to think that as nice as this facility is one day it's going to all burn up it's just going to be left behind in a heap of ashes sorry Paul but God will reward you for your faithfulness and I know you know that better than anybody you know uh, but yeah I mean this is this is this is life. Our, you know, we are sitting together in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Remember what ta Paul told uh, the Corinthians. He said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How often do you think about your identity in Christ and all the privileges that come with it? John tells us in John 1.12, As many as received him, which he goes on to say it, it, it is those who believe in his name. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. We are part of a unique spiritual family. Just as surely as, and, and these days it's, it's frightening how much data there is out there about DNA, but just as surely as you can trace your DNA and you can find who you're connected to physically, biologically, if we could test our spiritual DNA, guess what? We'd all be related. Now, we don't have to all have the same football team, but we're all related. Okay? You're my brother and sister in Christ. We're part of the family of God. Now, that's something to be thankful for. See what I'm saying? So we, think, we thank God for our families. And I know that for a lot of people, the earthly aspect of, of families and stuff can be painful. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you're estranged from a child. There could be heartaches associated with this time of year, too. And I get that. But... It seems to me we have an easier time, especially this time of year when we're prompted to do it as believers, thinking about all of our blessings and what we're grateful for on this earthly realm. But we need to think about it from a heavenly perspective. The same John who wrote this gospel that we just looked at here on the screen, later in his epistles said this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it does not know him. John, you get the sense he's overwhelmed at the thought that through Christ, we're part of God's family. And I love that last part of this verse, therefore, the world does not know him because it did, does not know us because it did not know him. You know, the closer we get to the return of the Lord, the more we're going to be pegged as being this extremist group that's, you know, hateful and intolerant and, and all of that. Well, don't be surprised by that. Because to the extent that we are followers of Christ, the world is not going to understand why we do what we do. Remember the verse we looked at a moment ago uh, from chapter 2 of Colossians. Uh, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world. The basic principles of the world are contrasted with who we are as God's children and God's Christ, you know, in Christ, I mean. So we are, you know, there's this contrast between the satanic worldly system and God's system. So the world looks at us and it doesn't understand why we stand firm for truth, why we, you know, have the hope that is within us. It doesn't understand our perspective because... They're constrained to this earth. We're not. We have heavenly blessings and heavenly hope. 
to go back to our text in verse 1. So he says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Seek. Seek. The Greek word here is zeteo. It means to diligently strive for something. I want to show you a couple of other places where this word is used to kind of give you the sense of the true force of this word when Paul says, Seek those things which are above. First of all, we go back to Christ's earthly life. Luke tells us in his early days, uh, he, he, when he was a boy, he ran off, and they, his parents couldn't find him. Joseph and Mary couldn't find him. You remember that? So they finally find him, and they were amazed because he was in the temple. Uh, and remember, he said, uh, I mean, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? You know. But anyway, Luke tells us in verse 42, 48, his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? You know, you can picture that if you've ever had a child run off, you know. Um, you're trying to give me a heart attack? Where have you been? Been looking all over for you. And then Luke records her saying, Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. That's zeteo, sought. Just imagine frantically looking for a missing child. Or in 2 Timothy... Uh, Paul says, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. So here's a guy who wanted to see Paul. He knew he was in Rome somewhere. You know, he couldn't just text him and say, Meet me at the town square. You know, so he's looking. And how do you do that? And that day, well, you just, you just walk around and you look, right? Have you seen Paul? Have you seen Paul? But the text says, He sought me out very zealously. So if you go back to the text, we're not merely to think about heaven, but to diligently strive to live life according to heaven's perspective. Seeking those things which are above. It's this, the same word that Paul uses here is what the Lord Jesus used in His Sermon on the Mount, the first major sermon that He preached when He said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek you. The context here, he's talking about worry and anxiety. He says, no, no, just seek the Lord diligently. If our attention and focus is on God and His heavenly plan, we'll have nothing to worry about. The things of this world will grow strangely dim. Remember that? Oh, him. I love this quote by Matthew Henry. You know, Matthew Henry is the great 17th century English Bible scholar. He may not have understood God's end times plan very Clearly, he was an amillennialist, but man, he really had an unquestionable understanding of the importance of a, of, of a heavenly perspective. And he said, quote, Heaven and earth are contrary one to the other, and the prevalence of our affection to one will proportionately uh, weaken our affection to the other. Now just think about that. The more you think about the world and all of its troubles... It's going to dim your understanding of all that God is and all of our blessings in Christ. The more we think about our blessings in Christ and the heavenly places, the more the things of this earth will seem not that big of a deal. So are you thinking about your identity in Christ? Secondly, are you thinking about Christ's intercession for us? Are you thinking about Christ's intercession for us? Where is Christ right now and what is He doing? Have you thought about that? Paul says, The Son of God who died and rose again to pay our sin, for our sins is now at the right hand of God interceding for us. He's our advocate. 
go back to verse 1 again, the last phrase, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. The right hand of God. Paul told us in Romans, who is it he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. See, when Christ ascended to heaven, waiting to come back again on the Father's command when, when, when it's time to move into the end times and fulfill all of God's plan of the ages and bring the world full circle back to the Garden of Eden. When, when He did that, he, he isn't just up there doing nothing. He's got a specific place, which is very important, the right hand of God, and a specific task. He's interceding for us. John put it this way, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, remember John had said, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. We all know we sin. But we, we, by understanding who we are in Christ and walking in the Spirit, not after the flesh, we can keep the old man in check. And he says, but if you do, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So that's what he's doing. But what's the significance of the right hand of the throne of God? What's the significance of this throne at God's right hand? We go back to... David's psalm in Psalm 110, a very powerful messianic psalm quoted often in the New Testament. The Lord, that's Yahweh, the personal creator God, said to my Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool. So there it is again. A thousand years before the New Testament was written, we see God telling us where Christ is going to be. And he's only there for a period of time till I make your enemies your footstool. This throne is the throne in waiting. It's not the Davidic throne. It's not the kingdom throne. It's not the throne in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem from which Jesus Christ will rule the world with a rod of iron in perfect peace and justice. It's a different throne. It's a throne in waiting. And what's he doing there? He's interceding for us. Paul told the Ephesians, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's where Christ is right now. But notice what Paul says in the rest of this verse. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. I love that. Christ is far above all the evil spirits and demonic entities that are seeking to overcome the world today. You know, we know from Scripture that Satan currently has access to God. He enters God's throne room to accuse us. He's the great accuser. Remember the account of Job when Satan approached God in heaven. We also know from the book of Revelation that someday during the future tribulation at around the midpoint, God is going to bar Satan from ever coming into heaven again. And he's going to be constrained to this earth. Right now he can come and go. But I want you to think about that situation. When Satan, as the Bible says he does, approaches God in heaven. And it occurs to me that there must be quite a bit of tension when Satan addresses God with Jesus Christ sitting right there at his right hand. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who's going to ultimately, he already has, but ultimately on this earthly realm, destroy him and cast him into the lake of fire. I mean, I may be just thinking too much about this, but I think about Jesus 
sitting over here at the right hand of God. Let's just pretend God's throne is here. Here's the throne at the right hand of God. Jesus is sitting here. Satan comes in to accuse you or me or somebody. And I just picture Jesus looking at Satan with this knowing glare, almost like, your day's coming. Go ahead and ask him what you want. And I, and I, and I, I think Satan must shudder as he sees Christ right there, kind of in the batter's box, ready to step up to the plate and take Satan's place, who is now currently the God of this age, as Paul calls him, and, and, and destroy him. I mean, just think about it. Every time Satan approaches God, he sees a picture, a symbol of what it's going to be like when Christ comes back and throws off the Antichrist. Remember, the Antichrist is going to, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Daniel, 2, Daniel 9, he's going to set himself up on the throne of, of earth and claim that he's God and demand that the whole world, world worship him for a short period of time, three and a half years. But someday Christ is going to come back. Of course, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast in the lake of fire. And Christ is going to take that throne. And Satan has to look at him sitting right there at the right hand of God every time he goes into God's office. This is the amazing kind of stuff that we should be thankful for and think about. Uh, and especially this time of year. But if you don't think about heavenly things, you're going to, and you're only focused on earthly blessings, you're going to miss out on stuff like that. So... Are you thinking about Christ's intercession for us? He's our advocate, uh, interceding for us. And then the third thing we should be thinking about is our inseparable relationship with Christ. Are you thinking about the permanent nature of your new life in Christ, how nothing can separate us from you know, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Let's go back to verses 2 and 3 in the text. Here's where we get the main title for this message, Set Your Mind on Things Above, Not on Things on Earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So what I think we see here is that we must not only seek heavenly things, we must also think heavenly thoughts. That's what Paul is saying here. Set your mind. Think about heavenly things. Remember what Jesus told Peter in that famous interchange in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus is beginning, Matthew tells us, to tell his disciples that he's got to go to Jerusalem, he's got to suffer many things and be handed over and be killed and raised again the third day. I mean, Jesus spelled it out for them. And you remember Peter, as he so often did, just immediately jumped up and said, No, Lord, like there's ever a time to say those two words together. And, and the Lord rebukes him, and what is... Uh, the Lord say, "Get behind me, Satan! You are not a, you are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men." Whenever we get our minds off Christ, we get in trouble. So set your minds on things above. Paul told the Romans, "Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit." For to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You want to walk around like a dead man or you want to walk around like a new man or woman in Christ? So back to the text. Set your mind on things above, not on things other. For you died. The moment you placed your faith in Christ for eternal life, the old man in you died. You are no longer sold under sin. Paul talks about this 
extensively in Romans chapters 6 and 7 and 8. Now, of course, if we cater to the old man, we can revive him. You know, it's what Paul talked about when he said, who will rescue me from this body of death? You know, remember Romans 7 at the end? So we've put the old man to death, but how much, how often do we love to go back and grab that corpse and strap it on our back and try to live like the old man? Another analogy Paul uses there in Romans 6 and 7 is the slave free. He says, you've been set free from sin. So why do you want to walk back into that prison cell and close the door behind you? We're free, right? So notice what Paul said earlier in Colossians. He said, therefore, if, and again, this word if in Greek is the word since, is the idea. Since you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to those regulations, the ones the false teachers were trying to put on them? Notice he says, why, as though living in the world. I mean, those are the kind of phrases that just slip by us if we're not really focused. But the point that he's making is, we don't live in the world. You don't, you're not really here. <laughs> Essentially what Paul is saying. We're just passing through. Our home is in heaven. We've died, Paul says, to that old man. In the earliest letter that Paul wrote, which is the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, uh, he told them, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh that you can see, really I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's setting your mind on things above. Back to the text, he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. For the false teachers in Colossae, they were proclaiming that wisdom and knowledge you know, were hidden in their secret books and they had secret channels to somehow gain this wisdom and only they were privy uh, to it. Uh, by the way, the Greek word for, for secret books is the same word we get the word apocrypha from. So you're familiar with the apocryphal books. Well, apocryphoi means secret, mystical, based on secret human wisdom. So those books are not inspired by God. They're not divine revelation from God. They're not part of the Bible. They may have some interesting data historically, but they're certainly not a source of true wisdom. For us, Christ, and for us today, as revealed in the Word of God, is our source of wisdom. And our life is hidden with Him. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So there's a certain security that comes with being in Christ and knowing uh, that we're hidden with God in Christ. In uh, Romans chapter 8, he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be ever to separate us from the love of God, notice, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you thought about our inseparable relationship with Christ? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, another interesting observation about this phrase here that Paul uses is that as believers, if our lives are hidden with Christ, that sort of implies that it's not something that's readily vis visible to others with the naked eye. In other words, 
as we said earlier, maybe the reason the world doesn't understand us is they don't understand our relationship. They can witness our relationship with loved ones on earth. We might give them a hug. We might clearly have a relationship with them. They're, they're not privy to this special, intimate, hidden relationship. Uh, they don't see, the per, they don't have the perspective that we have, which is that God is, is, is wrapping His arms around us because of our relationship with His Son and our Savior. And that might look weird or strange to the world, but we know that it's because our life is hidden with Christ in God. Someday all the world will know who's a part of the family of God. That's what Paul said in Romans 8 when he says, The eager expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Someday everyone will know what we know, that we're part of the family of God. Now they should know it if we share our testimony with them and the whole evangelistic enterprise that Jesus commands us to do is to do that, but I'm talking about globally. One day it will be clear who's part of the family of God and who's not. So are you thinking about your inseparable relationship with Christ? Are you grateful for your eternal security in Him that nothing can separate us from Him? And then finally, and uh, this is one of maybe the reason I love this passage so much, uh, if we look at verse 4, we're going to see, are you thinking about Christ's imminent return? Are you thinking about Christ's imminent return? When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will appear with Him in glory. Now, what does the term imminent mean? This is a very, very important doctrinal word that I think people misunderstand. Uh, even people that understand Bible prophecy uh, sometimes misuse you know, the term. I, I come across people all the time that, that don't even really know how to spell it. They'll, they'll say imminence. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Imminence is like inherent presence, you know, like the NSA. Yeah, that's imminence, right? And some people say eminence. That's not it either. That's like held in high regard, uh, a very high ranking, you know, kind of like the cowboys, eminence, right? But we're talking here about imminence, totally different word. And the doctrine of eminence is the belief that the rapture could happen at any moment. It's the next great prophetic event to occur in the world, and the Bible teaches eminence. Are you thinking about that? Are you thinking about that? Verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Notice, when Christ, who is our life, and that's loaded with implications. He's our life because we find new life in Him only. I am the way, the truth, and the life, He said. But since He is our life, as Paul has been saying in this short little section, we should set our minds on things above and consume ourselves with thoughts of the heavenly realm. You know, sometimes we'll say about a person, oh, you know, man, they're really gifted at, say, music. Yeah, music is their life. Or, man, he's a great athlete. Yeah, you know, sports is his life. But for the believer, that kind of outlook is short-sighted because all that's going to burn up and it'll happen in a heartbeat. <laughs> the older I get, the more I realize that, right? What we really want to say is that Christ is our life. Christ is our life. And Paul ties this concept of a heavenly perspective, set your mind on things above, directly to the rapture. Notice what he says in Philippians. Another one of his prison epistles, he wrote this just a few months after Colossians. I said he wrote Colossians in the fall of 61. In the spring of 62, he's writing this other prison epistle. And he says, our citizenship is from heaven, is in heaven 
from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Remember what we talked about in the first hour with Paul, you know, about our bodies. It's going to transform that lowly body so that we'll be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. I mean, so much in this passage. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're waiting for the rapture. And someday Christ is going to subdue all things to Himself. I mean, this is a picture of what we're hoping for and talking about. He calls it the blessed hope in his letter to Titus. Are you looking for the blessed hope? You can't look for something that you're not thinking about. Right? It's impossible. So you want to think about the Lord's imminent return. The Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That's the word rapture in the Latin translation. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, the final words in the Bible are, Even so, come Lord Jesus. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The word quickly there, surely I'm coming quickly, is, means literally suddenly, not soon, but suddenly. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, someday we will see our Lord's face. Are you thinking about Christ's imminent return? So what are you thinking? As you think about uh, Thanksgiving and your hearts are filled with gratitude this week and we have so much to be thankful for, that's all very healthy. We should do that rather than focusing on the difficulties and trials and tribulations of life. But include in that thought process heavenly things. Are you thinking about your identity in Christ? Are you thinking about Christ's intercession for us, where He is and what He's doing? Are you thinking about our eternal security and, and, and our inseparable relationship with Him? And are you thinking about His imminent return? So when you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table this week and you're looking across the table or down the table or whatever you're, you see, you're watching your grandkids play off in the corner, be grateful. But here's the takeaway. At the same time, we need to look up and be grateful. Look up and be grateful. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, uh, for all that you've given us in Christ, for our incredible spiritual blessings in Christ. Lord, we confess that we take those for granted. And Lord, uh, today we want to just give you praise and, and glory for what you've given us in, in Christ. Most of all, for our salvation. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that doesn't know Jesus personally as their Savior, that today they would recognize they're a sinner who needs a Savior, and only Jesus Christ has the power to give life because He died and rose again for our sins. And uh, they would trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. Father, we just uh, pray all this now in Jesus' name and for His sake.